sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it going, everybody? Hope we're doing well. That's a South African way of saying hello and hope you're doing well. Thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Cheers for all the positive reviews. It's great getting those. I love reading them. Now, this week on the podcast, I've got none other than Cam McCall. He sits alongside me in the commentary booth for the Crankworks World Tour. He also hosts and commentates on events like Red Bull Rampage. So you've seen him alongside the greats of Sal Masekela. Now, before he transitioned into that commentary role, Cam was really a pioneer in the sport of freeride. Coming from a dirt jump background, he moved into slope style, getting many podiums, wins around the world, and he also competed in the crazy events like Red Bull Rampage. He really was a guy pushing the sport. He's now a family man, he's got two amazing daughters, a lovely wife, but he still manages to hold a career in freeride. You can see him on YouTube, he's got an awesome vlog series, he also does a lot of movie segments, and like I said, he's also in the commentary booth, and he's just such a positive guy to be around always having a laugh. He is so knowledgeable. Guys, enjoy this episode with a good friend of mine, Cam McCall. You need to come up like Needles or Andrew Needling 112 or something. Andrew Needling 123. Radman. I have a similar one. My first email address that I made when I was a tiny youngster, Modo Man Cam. Is that because from your dad? Like your inspiration thought, from your dad? I I thought I was like going to be a moto guy, you know? <laughs> but you always like, did aspire to be one because you had four on your jersey, didn't you? Yeah, that was an inside joke from uh, Chris Gagan, who worked at Fox. He, uh, do you remember? That? Oh, he uh, was giving me a hard time because I got so many fourths at that event, and so on the third, fourth, fifth, on the fourth year. We went to dinner the night before Slope Style Finals, and he was like, oh, I got something special for you for tomorrow. And he unwraps this jersey that's got a four on it, and he was just laughing. Everybody's laughing. He was like, you don't have to wear it. We're just playing around. We're just messing with you. And I was like, no way. I'm wearing this thing. That's sick. It looked all Ricky Carmichael. But that was why he did it is because I kept getting fourth, and so he's like just giving me a hard time, really. And then <clears throat> that was the year where I broke my fourth place. I, don't, I wouldn't call it a curse, but that was when I, the first time I did not get fourth. And so then I just ran the jersey forever. But then all the super fans thought you were a Moto fan. And then you got it because you're a Carmichael <laughs> super <laughs> fan. But the inside jokes, the inside joke's pretty cool. I like that. It is, right? And then, like, if you think about it, nobody was wearing jerseys then. And so that was, like, the first time somebody wore a jersey in a slope style. And then, it, and then I'm not saying I started a trend or anything, but now people wear jerseys. <laughs> hey, man. It's just a fact. You're not you're not <laughs> you're not showboating if it's a fact. Well, it's a good it's a good segue or, or a reason for me to even intro this. Although I'm going to do no intro justice because I'm trying to intro the man himself, Cam McCall, who sits as a teammate with me in the booth. And we basically Rochambeau who's going to do the voiceover after the broadcast. And I hate them. And you're very experienced. So I'm not even going to try compete with you, but for the fans at home that don't know Camacall very well, he's a pioneer of the free ride, free ride world. You see, I've already butchered the intro. That's classic. So take two. I've had talk back from the host. 
Let's try that again. So, I'm honored to have a call with Cam McCall, a pioneer of freeride. You know what? You're an inspiration to me because I don't know how you wear so many hats. You've got two amazing daughters. You've got a family. You've still got a freeride career. You've got sponsors to keep happy. Well, can't wait to get going, Cam. How are we doing? Thank you, Andrew. That was that was heartwarming. And it's funny you say that I wear a lot of hats because I'm recording this from my closet, as you can see. And all you can see from my closet is my hat, how many hats I have. Well, yeah. Well, it just sums up how many hats you, you do, that? do wear. That's a wall of hats right there. And then above my microphone, it's just more hats. And all I do every day is attempt to wear as many of them as possible. Yeah, for the listener at home, Cam's quite a little uh, audio tech geek. Are you a tech geek or just an audio geek? Because I'm, I hate tech. Right, I'm just an audio geek. I really don't. I'm like you when it comes to like tech in general. I don't have time to, or I don't have enough interest to keep updated on things. Like for example, the reason why we're a few minutes late starting this from our scheduled airtime was because i had to download skype onto my computer like i don't have all the little tech tech gadgets but i love audio andrew i love it you know what? when we're in the booth i'm just like fiddling with all the knobs touching them talking to the audio engineer like i love this stuff and so when it comes to audio then i'm i'm geeky about that kind of tech i just love it and that's the very reason you've tested all rooms in your household and your walk-in closet is the best soundproof room what's what's going on dude Dude, check it out. Yes, my closet sounds fantastic. It's like when you're an audio geek, you walk into any room and you can just tell right away what's hitting your ear holes if it's like good or bad. And when you walk into my closet, there's like you can't see everything. All you can see is the hats right now, but there's just clothes hanging everywhere, right? And what is that? That just kills sound. So when you walk in and you clap, you just hear that one time when your hands hit together. You don't hear all the other times that it's bouncing off the walls, the sound waves, because it's not bouncing off the walls. The walls are full of clothes. My wife's clothes, my clothes. Therefore, I set up my microphone here because I end up doing a lot of voiceover at home. And check this out, Andrew. This is the exciting thing. We're, we're like doing a crazy ass remodel right now. And uh, part of the remodel is going to be expanding our closet. I'm going to make like a purpose built voiceover area. To where I don't have to make sure everybody like right now everybody's quiet because they're sleeping because it's not South Africa here and it's very early. Ooh, I'm gonna have to plug my laptop in. I'm not a tech geek. That thing's gonna die. And so <laughs> right now it's quiet, but there's like a weird little window that leads from my closet to downstairs. Don't ask me. Strange design, but all the sound comes in here into my beautifully sound deadened room. So I'm going to make a little area that's always going to be sound dead and i'm really excited about it it's like just ex just as exciting as like getting a new work area in your garage for working on bikes you know well i hope you don't have to come out of the closet in the middle of the show because <laughs> then you know the fan base is just going to go crazy it's 2020 i can come out of this closet anytime i want you joke you have to accept, <laughs> you have to accept me for that Andrew. i just i just edited something with soderstrom and he also said something about he's going to come out and i was like Okay, <laughs> so we had to play on those words, but you're literally in a closet and you have to come out of it maybe before the end of the yeah. show. You know what? If it was any other year besides 2020, I might be afraid about exiting this closet. But you know what? 
you have to accept me for who I am. I'm coming out of this thing as soon as we're done with this podcast, and you better be there for me. Well, speaking of accept you for who you are, take us to where it all began for you, because your dad was a daredevil freak of nature in his own right, flat track racer, and he <laughs> raced two youngsters that are now top of the free ride world. So for the listeners that are tuning in, or that maybe from the downhill side, or maybe you just want to get a glimpse into action sports, yeah, fill them in a little bit on that that upbringing. So he was all done with that by the time he uh, procreated. Uh, by the time I came to existence and developed some consciousness, he was a fire captain. So he would, um, you know, that's kind of a daredevilish job also, I would say, right? Yeah, you were quoted to say he, like, went to get a normal job away from the daredevil job, but then he became a firefighter. So that's, I think it's, it's in the genes. It's got to be in the genes of some sort. It's the type of thing that you don't think about when you're a kid, because it just is what it is. You're just growing up, you see pictures of your dad and, you know, whatever, motorcycles around the grandparents' home. You're like, oh, he used to do that. Cool. He didn't have any motorcycles when we were growing up. We just saw pictures of them. And, uh, yeah, he wasn't necessarily, I mean, he wasn't doing it actively when we were growing up. And so I find it's funny. It's like the nature nurture type of thing. We ended up just gravitating toward two wheels for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, being a firefighter, I remember telling you that I think that's funny is to like, you know, used to race motorcycles and then decide to get a normal job and run into burning buildings. Like that just all seemed normal for me when I was a kid. It's like he would go to work a day on and then you'd come back for a day off. And he was also installing cabinets on his days off as well with my grandfather. So he's busy, busy, busy. And you just think of it as, oh, dad's going to work. You know, like there's no difference between the cabinet installation job and the firefighter job. It's just going to work. But now in hindsight, you're like, oh man, that dude is kind of running a crazy program, racing motorcycles and then running into burning buildings and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, you take everything and you try to like shuffle it around and make sense out of it all. But I find it really funny that my brother and I ended up gravitating toward two wheels. And I almost see it as a coincidence because we weren't pushed into it. I almost feel like my dad begrudgingly accepted the fact that we were going to do it because he was well aware of the dangers involved and the amount of like, you know, time spent working on your kids' bikes if they decide to get into it. Like, you know that. Like, I'm sure your dad was probably beating his head against the wall at certain points when you and Jaunty were breaking your bikes. And, uh, and you know, it's you never know why you get into something, you know, like, but we did. And uh, and now it just lives on. And my daughters are like insanely obsessed with two wheels and kind of makes sense because they're surrounded by bikes all the time. And they're, you know, every once in a while, they'll come with me to a bike event and stuff like that. So that's like a little bit of um, nurture as well, because they're surrounded by it. But I do think that there's some thing in the brain that predisposes you to be attracted toward certain things. Was your dad into your dad was super into riding, right? And that's how you guys got into it? Yeah, I mean, we got into riding because of him, but I was into all sports, but you're right. So it's the, so what do you believe? There is some in the gene, but then the environment pushes you to try something and if you're good at it, I think you carry on doing it. I mean, this is a good it's a good topic. I mean, it's a great sports topic, you know. Are people born with it? Or is it their environment and how much they work and what sort of dedication they have? It's it's tough to differentiate. I think there's a lot to do with genes and like your makeup, but your environment is really important as well. Yeah, I think it's a combo deal because 
think about all the things you're exposed to growing up. Like I just I watch my daughters right now and they're exposed to a ton of things, but they seem to like biking the most at this point in time. And if that changes, that's totally fine. But I get people asking me all the time, oh, wow, well, what was it for you and your brother? How did you get into it? And how are you getting your daughters into it? And this and that. And I like I don't think there's any uh, active like it's a passive process, you know, so for people trying to get advice on how to like get your kids excited about mountain biking, I think it has to be their choice, regardless of what you're trying to get them into. If you're trying to get them into ballet, they better love it because if they're not predisposed to liking it, that that, that shit's probably going to be pretty damn boring. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Tiger so Woods thing. Tell people, Sorry, you were saying? Oh, I always just tell people, um, let them pursue whatever it is they seem to gravitate toward. And if it's a phase, then they'll grow out of it. And if you really want them to be into the things that you're into, the worst thing you could do is force it upon them. Just surround them with things. And like, it's like putting the fish lure right down in the fish hole where you see them all swimming, you know, like they might bite it. They might just swim on past, but the closer you put it to them, the more likely they are to chomp. Yeah. I mean, the Tiger Woods story is fascinating. He, as a youngster was put on a chair and his dad was a passionate golfer and he would make swings and his Tiger Woods would just see this. And then when Tiger first picked up a club, he swung left-handed um, because he was mimicking his dad. And his dad oh. never actually pushed him to play. He would always say, I'm going to the course. And he wouldn't even invite Tiger sometimes. It got to the point that Tiger wanted to hang out with his dad, so the story goes. So he wanted to be around his dad. He wanted to be around golf. And then he exactly, he learned to love it. Like he wanted to be around his dad. And then he started getting good at yes. And then his dad taught him how to be mentally strong and push that on him you know if you want to make a make a go of this you know and then that's the next level but i think it's brilliant what you're doing you put the little lure there you dangle a little carrot like hey if you want to have some fun with me we can do bikes if you don't like bikes we'll do something else it, it doesn't really matter as long as they learn to enjoy it that's what's up man that story is really cool as you're talking about one of the greatest to ever do something and the origins of why he became interested in it i feel like for those people who are asking how you get your kids into mountain biking, that's it. You know you've done it when they see you leaving and they get pissed. Yeah. Oh, where yeah. are you going, Dad? <laughs> I'm going riding. And they get just look in their eye like, without me? And you're like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it's working. Yeah, like Dr. Evil voice. What, um, has that, is that happening a bit for you? Like when you go do a shoot or you go out riding? I mean, they just want to hang around with Dad, I guess. For sure. And that's like, I mean, that's two things. That's a sign of, you know, I don't know. That's a sign that you're doing something right in two different ways. They want to be with you. They're not psyched that you're getting out of their hair and they want to do the thing that you're doing. Like my good buddy that I've been filming a lot with here at home, John Reynolds, who you, you probably know. Yeah, Reynolds, yeah, right? yeah. John yeah. Reynolds works so, with Clay Porter. I mean, they, he's, you know, they've produced some amazing stuff. Exactly. So he lives in Ben now as well as Clay. And so I've been filming a ton with Reynolds. Um, get well soon, Reynolds. He just crashed at the BMX track with his son two days ago. Broke seven ribs. He's all he's all like hurting right now. But anyways, we go out to film and both of us travel a ton for work. And so like our kids are like, what? You're leaving? How long? Is it like a week trip or whatever? They get all worried. And uh, and like, oh, we're just going out to film for the day. We're just going to ride here. And his kid gets super pissed at him if he's like, oh, dad, you're going to go work, do something boring. All right, fine. You know, I'll see you soon as long as you're not going to be gone for too long. But if he's going out to film bike riding, then his kid's pissed because he wants to come, you know. And it's like 
and, and my kids are pissed because they want to come. It's like, we're like, yes, our kids like bike riding. It's, it's so good. And they want to hang out with you. They're at a good age. Yeah. Let's, let's talk when they're yeah. 16, I guess. And they want nothing, oh, nothing to do with you. The doors of the bedrooms will be closed and dad will be the scum of the earth. I know it's going to happen. I've read this book. It's uh, written by Duff McKagan, who's the bass player at Guns N' Roses. He's got two daughters and he wrote a book about like, you know, whatever. Like he, this book kind of picks up after he's done with his crazy rock star party phase. And he's like now a husband and a father and this and that of two daughters. And so that's like totally a through line throughout the book is like, oh, the period of time where your daughters hate you and don't want anything to do with you. And the doors are closed for like he states how many years it was for him. And so I just read that. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'll enjoy it now when they actually think I'm cool. <laughs> I can't speak to that, but I do think that uh, that skit from the movie Bad Boys where Will Smith comes to the door with Mon Lawrence or whatever the name is and that that teenager comes to pick up the daughter if you're not recalling this after the podcast. And basically, Will Smith pretends to be like this drunken uncle that just got out of prison and a guy comes to the door and I'm going to butcher it, but he's like, hey, I'm here to pick up so-and-so. And then Will Smith like barges in. He's like, how old are you? And he says all other words as well because he's drunk. And he's like, I'm uh, six, 16. Well, they ain't going to be so, you know, no nothing tonight. And he's just going at this little kid's like yes. at the door, just scares the living shit. He's like, you'll have her home at, you know, one minute past 11. That's too late. He's like, I just got out of prison. I ain't scared to go back, you know, like. So you'll be able to do that to the boys that come to the door, you know. What that just told me is that by the time they become that age, I need my brother to be hanging out here and I need to feed him booze. So he can be the drunken uncle and intimidate whatever that doorbell rings. Yeah, and like <laughs> fake shotguns, just like picks one up at the door and just comes to the door. Who's at the door, fool? Who do you think you are? All right, check this out. I listened to the Cam Zinc Moving the Needle podcast, and I remember the moment when he had to sell a bike and he pushed pause. Okay, so check it out. My battery is going to die. That's so great. let's just do that same thing. I'm going to go get a charger, all right? Noted. And I'm going to stop my recording here and make sure I save it in case it dies while I run downstairs. Don't and even stop it. it just... so your sink is a little bit easier, but I just saved it. So if it dies, we don't lose it. I'm going to go get my charger and I'll be See, RV this is authentic. We are, we are just living it, learning as we go. I'm going to title it Moving the Needle Pod. <laughs> He's titling it as we speak. I'm, gonna, I'm starting to edit less and be more authentic. So you do whatever you need to do. I'll probably just leave it in. Huh, can you hear me? All right, you're back. And... Huh. Good. You did leave the closet, so to all the sports fans out there, Cam is out the closet and back in the closet. <laughs> so we can continue. Uh, Skype would like to record this computer screen. Grant access to this application and security. Uh, yeah, sure. Nah, whatever. I don't need to record my screen right now. Why is it trying to give me all these options? There we go. We're back to normal. Hey, we work together enough to where I know you have a full understanding of my attention span and I have a full understanding of your attention span. So I would just like to say I'm very proud of myself because I just went to get my laptop charger downstairs in the room where I keep all my guitars and I saw them all sitting there and I didn't forget what we were doing and start playing them. I grabbed the charger, I came all the way back up and here we are, we're back in action. Uh, yeah, Cam and I have uh, hints of ADD. Hints is a uh, pretty nice word for it. And you spoke about being in the booth together and, and we were joking before we came on. I wish we could have recorded our text dialogue because uh, we're used to putting on, you know, testing mics, putting on headphones, and then we have a producer, his name's TJ, taught us both a lot. 
Um, and we were joking, like, when's he going to tell us to go live? Like, oh, we've got to call each other and start this ourselves. So that's us having a <laughs> Bro, bit of we've fun. We've been set free. But, this is dangerous. We're on our own. But that's a perfect topic. I, ha I made a few notes. I didn't want to make too many with you because I think with you and I, the best way to do this is just improv because you've got so many good stories. But your positive attitude is infectious. And we're always having a good time in the booth. And you're always having a good time riding in your YouTube channel. It just comes out in everything. Where on earth does it come from and how do you always stay that positive? Oh, man. Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, I think it's like a I mean, obviously, there's certain times where you just got I mean, you got you can't be like blindfully optimistic. You know, there's certain times where you're like, this is garbage and there's another way around it. But I do believe that like you have you do have a decision to spin a lot of scenarios. And I like. I enjoy watching comedy because I feel like that's that's like a nice little um, escape from everything. You know, you're watching somebody being vulnerable on stage and their entire purpose is to uh, to help you enjoy that time. Right. And so what they're doing is they're finding f elements that are funny about certain situations. And I feel like in any situation, there is something funny there in, in, in most cases the rougher the situation the less likely you are to be allowed to shine a light on that that funny <laughs> aspect of the situation especially in 2020 which is the year we're living in right now where everybody's so sensitive but i feel like there's an opportunity in everything to either find something funny and that's usually the way to find something enjoyable you know and so if stuff's garbage Think about what it might be like in six months when you're thinking back to it. There's probably going to be something funny about it. And if you put yourself in that um, back to the future, six month ahead uh, headspace, you might be able to see what's funny about it right now. Even if you're like, you know, stuck in a rainstorm and your feet are caked in mud. And I don't know, there's garbage going on, but find something funny about it. And you do have an opportunity to decide whether or not you're going to enjoy something or not. And it's a whole lot more, um, it's a whole lot easier way to go through the day, finding something to enjoy about it rather than uh, just perpetuating what sucks, you know? So I do think you have a, a choice uh, as to what you're going to focus on. You're going to focus on what might be funny and what might be enjoyable about this shit situation or are, are you going to just let it bring you down? And then now you're in a spiral. You're in the snowball effect of like, oh, this sucks, that sucks. And, you know, it's not that I've always been positive about every situation. I'm real. Like some things totally suck and some things are totally frustrating. But I guess I've, you know, chosen to, uh, to focus on the better things unless it's just so shitty then, then you know, you know, then what are you going to do? You know, find something to laugh about, find something to enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I think we could swap out the word funny or find something funny with, like you said, you, you make a choice. Yes, you're positive. You're funny to be around. You make fun a lot. It's awesome. But you've made a choice to say, maybe find the positive in something. And that leads you to something even funnier or whatever. And you're right. There's always a silver lining or positive in something. And we're not saying you have to be positive every day or have fun every day. There's going to be without down days. There's no good days. Then you're crazy. Then you're no, then crazy. you're literally deluded and crazy. You're just a crazy. laughing crazy person. <laughs> then you're a clown. You're literally a yes. clown on stage. Then you're a jester. No one thinks suck and just admit it. But if it doesn't suck that bad, 
then just shut up and find something to enjoy. Yeah. So is that so if this jester and clown is a little bit crazy and too positive on that scale, is Cam McCall just under that? Yes. Okay, well, that's great. I'm one so, step removed from just blissfully, intentionally ignorant and insane and barely tolerable. I'm one step removed from that, but only one step. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you put me on that weird totem pole? Uh, wherever is a nice, um, a nice, like, um, you know, not a repelling, um, not a repelling force. Like if you take two magnets with the same polarity and you put them together and they repel wherever I am on the spectrum, you're at a nice complimentary point on that, on that, um, spectrum to where we work well together. <laughs> you're trying you to put us next to each other. <laughs> you try to put like a nice way. Like, how am I going to put this nice that he's like a negative? He's like a two on this scale out of 10 no no i don't understand the scale so i'm just saying shit and trying to make sense <laughs> all right well let's i'm saying no let's let's kick it back a bit because this is well i don't even know what this podcast is that's why it's cool having you on because we can go any which way i don't even know if it's cycling is it sport is it psychology is it entertainment is it it's just a, everything this one but your career you spoke about getting those force plays and kind of being persistent and you were one that kind of pioneered slopestyle freeriders. You were one of the first guys for the listener out there. Slopestyle didn't exist when Cam McCall was growing up and riding. What was that like getting into a sport that really didn't exist? Who were you looking to emulate? Who were you taking inspiration from? So I would say when I got into mountain biking, it was at like a really cool time to where like, you know, slope style wasn't a thing. Free ride was like blossoming and action sports in general were like really hitting the mainstream and becoming popular. So the most uh, influential moment I'd say for my brother and I both would have been going to 1999 Summer X Games in San Francisco. And it's like, it's a full on like production. You're like, this is to, to young kids, this is the biggest thing in the world. Then you see people flying through the air on every wheeled vessel imaginable. But the one event that we drove up there specifically for was the freestyle motocross. And uh, that was like a complete and total life-changing moment watching those guys fly through the air, hanging off the back of their motorcycles and entertaining this entire group of people. What they were doing looked like fun the way they made us feel as the audience was uh, something unexplainable. And so I think the seed was planted at that moment for like a whole bunch of complex desires. It was like, I want to fly through the air and hang off the back of my something. I don't know what that something is yet. Is it going to be uh, a wakeboard? Is it going to be a motorcycle like them? Probably not. That looks uh, unattainable. Will it be a BMX bike? Maybe I have one of those. And so the seed was planted. I want to be doing that, uh, you know, exciting thing. And I want to be in front of people making them excited. You know, whether it was a conscious realization or a subconscious, most likely subconscious, because we drove straight back to Aptos and went right into like a baseball practice or something. You know, it was like wasn't wasn't a lot of time to digest what was going on. But the seeds were planted and they started to take root. And uh, when I would see kids riding around on mountain bikes around our town, it looked like I didn't know what they were, but they looked like um, they looked like a manifestation of all the things that were trying to take root in my mind. It's like 
It's not a BMX bike, but it's kind of like it. It's not that motorcycle, but it's kind of like it. These kids who are riding by, they look pretty free. Like they're just doing whatever they want. They drop into the woods and who knows what goes on while they're in the woods and they pop out the other side and then they're catching air in this dirt lot across the street from the post office. I was like, there's some connection between the things that we felt at X Games and the things that we were feeling watching these kids ride around. And so the mountain bike just kind of presented itself as the perfect vessel to really make all these things that we wanted to make happen that were subconsciously bubbling in our brains. And, uh, you know, luckily at the same time, um, little did we know, like, there was a sport that hadn't yet um, been born. And uh, it's like we started pursuing it around the same time as people were getting the bright idea that snowboard slope style was cool and mountain bikes are kind of similar to snowboards on the dirt except, you know, instead of the snow. And maybe we could take this competition format and adapt it over to dirt and, you know, put wheels on it. It's just great timing, really, with all the stuff that we were uh, inspired by and the fact that this young little sport was just starting to take root at the same time as our ideas were taking root in our heads. It was just it really a lot of timing. That's awesome to think it's kind of the, the world was working out kind of the way it should for you. It wasn't actually a conscious decision to get into mountain biking. It just was like naturally the thing that made the most sense after watching X Games. I think so. Sometimes hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. And other times, and other times, like um, your twenty twenty isn't exactly what happened, but that's the way I remember it, you know. And that's the way that makes sense in my head. I feel like it's just a lot of random moments that got assembled in an order that led to a certain point. But, but I don't know. You never think that people tell you straight up when you're growing up um, that you'll you'll never uh, get anywhere doing something that is you know, viewed as recreation. People don't uh, hold any punches trying to uh, stifle the inspiration or the creative drive or just the motivation of children, which is messed up. <laughs> Better go to school or else you're not, you're not going to make anything of yourself, you know? And so you just get that in your head that, oh, well, this is just for fun. And then it turns into something that's actually paying your bills and allowing you to live a life that you want to live. And you realize, hey, they were just saying that because they were frustrated about how their life turned out, you know? And so I think it's important to let kids... Hi, speaking of kids. Come here, kids. What's up, baby? I think it's important to, like, let kids, like, follow your dreams is such a kooky, like, um, cliche term. But it's just do stuff you like. And, and I remember my dad saying when we were kids, like, oh, you know, if you really work hard at anything, there's a way to, like, creatively make a living out of it, you know? And so that should be the ethos rather than, listen, there's a way, stay in school, kids, and, and just be a robot because that's the only way to make ends meet in the future and be a respectable member of society. You <laughs> right, Chai? You got no sleep today. I slept all night, silly. I just got up early. <laughs> I love it. I think this is so cool. It's just, it just shows how authentic you are and, and that you're a father almost first at this stage. And that's something. So your father instilled that in you and, and they gave you sort of the the platform to go and follow these dreams, even though they were crazy in a sport that didn't even exist. And now look at it. You've got two brothers at the top of the free ride world and you're announcing now as well at Rendwell Rampage, which is basically a mainstream sport now. And there were people along the way, just naysayers, saying, what are you doing? You should stay in school. Why are you riding? Yeah, like the guidance counselor in particular. <laughs> you go to, like to the meeting when you're going to graduate high school with the guidance counselor, and they 
okay, well, what's your plans for the next four years? I'm like, I don't know about four, but I know what I'm doing this year. And you tell them, I'm like, I got this stuff going on and I'm just going to follow this for a while. And they're like, they like roll their eyes, you know? And you're like, all right, whatever. But then, I don't know, it's been a long time since high school. I'm 34 now and high school is what, when you're 18? So that's 16 years ago, I guess. I'm not, I'm not that good at, no, I'm horrible at math. What is, I don't know. It's some amount of years ago. Who knows, Andrew? But yeah, <laughs> I'm still doing this, which is crazy. It's weird. It's like, I don't know, you drop your kids off at school and they are all, you know, doing normal things. Like, I definitely go through times where I'm like, I do a weird thing for a living. This is not sustainable. And everybody probably looks at me as like, when is this guy going to grow up? But then I go through times where I'm like, ha ha, I'm loving this. It's still working. All right. It's like constantly like when you have kids and you see what like normalcy should be, you're like, oh, maybe I should be doing that. And you're like, no, this is sweet and it's still working. So like keep doing it. So, Cam, I mean, you reach the pinnacle of the sport. You're one of the pioneers of slopestyle. You get to the top. You're successful in Rampage. Um, I'm always fascinated at what point you start thinking about retiring or you, you feel, especially in a sport like that, you can get hurt. There are injuries which you've bounced back from. Can you take us back to the point where you say, you know what, this competitive slopestyle and even Rampage to a certain level is, is not for me anymore? Yeah, no, I remember that. Very clearly, um, 2014 was my last season. Sorry, huffing, puffing. Now just ran downstairs, ran back up. <laughs> 2014 was my last season competing in slope style, and uh, I will say the decision process of quitting slope style and the decision process of quitting rampage were two completely separate ones that happened to take place two months apart. But uh, all season in 2014, I was doing a lot of filming. That was the year that Unreal uh, was being shot. And uh, I was spreading myself thin doing the contest and doing the film segments, which is just a fact of life at that point because that's what I had been doing for 11 years already. Um, but I was finding much more satisfaction in the filming um, projects than I was the contest, mostly because... The filming projects were super in line with why I got into mountain biking and the things that I like to explore and push myself into. And, uh, you know, we were shooting segments like the one with the horses where we were out in this really cool terrain in Wyoming and really just picking whatever you wanted to ride, building it and sessioning it. It was just, you know, doing a film segment is a lot like a bunch of tiny little, um, like, rampage features, you know? They're projects. You build them, you set them up, you shoot them. And there's this massive sense of satisfaction at the end when, once you get it. And uh, that's mountain biking to me. It's exploring. It's like letting the, the sport be a medium for your creativity to escape your head instead of just, uh, you know, destroy you from the inside out. <laughs> a way to get that out. And then the competitions at that point, I felt like I was becoming less and less interested in um, and a lot of that was due to the fact that the courses were becoming way more standardized. I didn't show up at a slope style course anymore going, oh man, I wonder what this course is going to be. I know, I wonder who's going to go where. And let me like find some approach to this that will suit my strengths and give me an opportunity to win. That's really what drew me to slope style in the beginning is, you know, we talked about how I was super inspired by 99X Games and watching watching the riders attack that course from different angles, hit different lines, hit transfers, trick transfers. It was just the creativity was still 
uh, an element of slope style at that point. Um, and I won't say that it's not an element anymore. It's just very different. It's become super gymnastics. The courses are all one line and it's just about the tricks. It's just about the tricks, which is great for a sport. Like I am the biggest fan of that sport. It just wasn't the sport that I started doing anymore. It had moved into a more commercially friendly direction. Um, not to say that if they went back to having unique course designs, it wouldn't be entertaining because I think that a time will come for that and we're getting pretty close to that. But the riders who are at the top of their game are so good at tricks and they are still progressing to the point where it can be entertaining um, on its own, just being carried by that without courses changing in five, six, seven years of time. So the sport was, you know, going a different direction than the way I wanted to go with my riding. And I'm looking at all the tricks that all the riders were doing going like, if I tried that right now, I'm going to the hospital. Like <laughs> playing toward my strengths wasn't working in that anymore unless I wanted to learn these tricks that I would be forcing myself to learn. And so I made the decision in the middle of the 2014 season. I'm like, I'm going to finish out this season and then not do slope style anymore, but I'm going to keep doing rampage. Like quitting slope style was always just like, you know, one step into um, stepping back from uh, competition. I still planned on doing Rampage. Um, but then with like being able to take control over your own risks, um, being, you know, a guiding theme into my reasoning behind not competing anymore, um, I'm going into Rampage going, holy cow, like uh, I had a lacerated kidney that year from a crash at Joyride and I was told not to ride yet but I went to Rampage thinking I would just like make it through the whole event without taking a single crash, which is insane. I feel like if you're going to go into Rampage, you should be ready and willing to take at least one hard digger or else you shouldn't be there. So I was there um, with the um, prescribed recommendation from doctors not to crash or else you're going to be in, you know, big trouble, you know. And so that was an uncomfortable place to be. And I went, all right, you know what, I'm not doing Rampage this year. And it wasn't necessarily a decision going, I'm not doing Rampage ever again. It was just, I'm not doing Rampage this year. But after a whole year went by and I started getting the um, <clears throat> the announcing thing going <clears throat> for Slope Style. And then I got the offer to announce at Rampage. And I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. And uh, there are some days where I go, oh, man, that event is so cool. And it would, like, I sometimes daydream about doing it, you know. But, but it's just like... It's not uh, a risk that I decided was um, worth the reward at any uh, anymore just because raising a family and, and the consequences are not just your own anymore. Like I used to be completely ready and willing to accept any and all consequences when I was at a contest. And I have plenty of scars and metal in my body to prove that I would watch somebody do a run and realize, well, that's the winning run unless I do something better and then drop in and then snap myself off and be fine with that because I go, well, that's the risk that I'm willing to take to try to win right now. And and if I get hurt, then I got to deal with it. But when you got a family, if I got hurt, everybody's got to deal with it, you know? And so that weighed heavy on me and the timeline syncing up with opportunities to just like announce all these events, which is something that I really enjoy doing. Um, yeah, I decided to just stop competing altogether and uh, that's that was that. Well, what's that mental aspect like? You spoke about it. You were willing to take gambles when you were um, a lot younger, right? I mean, at the top of the course, 
you mentioned before that you would take a gamble or you're willing to get hurt because you wanted to do a winning run. And that adjustment now to not being able to, say, get that adrenaline kick, I mean, pushing boundaries like that, is what's that mental challenge like? Yeah, you need it. It's crazy. Um, like, kind of being fueled by that for so long. Like, those competitions are full-on, uh, like, doses of adrenaline you know and you get addicted to that process of being like miserable before a run and then landing your run and then just being euphoric like that is something that isn't like super normal and it isn't easy to adjust to not getting that on a regular basis anymore it's like you could totally um probably compare it to you know people who've got like you know substance issues you know they get this incredible rush and there's nothing that compares, and then they just go down a you know a dark path. Adrenaline hits you hard, and uh, it's like the best feeling ever. So when you stop doing that thing that is like your primary guaranteed source of adrenaline, you go, oh man, I better supplement that. And like I've supplemented supplemented it through filming, and you know setting out goals for yourself, and accomplishing them under a more like controlled circumstance. But still, like if you're if you're a young kid doing a you know, a competition season, you get that feeling like every other weekend or something like that. You know, like Nikolai Ragakin, he gets that feeling every every other weekend because he's traveling the entire world doing competitions, which is what all of us used to do. And uh, when all of a sudden, like, you aren't just getting that passively, you have to actively go find places to get it, but also still taking into consideration the risks that you're now just uh, by choice, uh putting yourself against uh, yeah that is like a strange um uh thing to wrap your head around <laughs> do you miss competing i mean racing downhill is like a gnarly adrenaline rush as well and how is it for you yeah i mean i miss i miss competing and it fascinates me because it's an, in a non-like complaining way like a race morning and from what you've just said, a comp morning is quite a horrible feeling. Like you're nervous, you're not, you don't really want to eat and you just want to get it over with. And then as soon as you like do it and you're in the zone, if you can get in the zone, then you do it. There's such a relief. And yes, if you do well, it's like there isn't a better feeling. I mean, Sean Palmer's been quoted. He was like, he's done a lot of drugs. And he's won a race or races, and he compares them to. He's like, there's no, it's there's no question, there's no better feeling like standing on top of the podium, saying that you kicked everyone's ass, and you worked and you achieved your goal. So that's a dangerous place to be because you know some sportsmen get into substance abuse or get into alcohol. So the retiring and what you start focusing on and how you reflect on that, it is an interesting topic. Um, and I obviously miss that feeling and that single-minded focus. And that's why I like to pick your brain. Like, what are you filling that, well, we call it a void, but, you know, you've got a family now, so maybe you've got better ways to look at it all. Yeah, it's not like, uh, it's a real topic. It's cool to talk about with you, too, because you do podcasts with people who don't have that same, like, uh, curve, you know, that roller coaster that they've been on and then got off of, you know, and they, they're just fascinated because they're like, wow, what's that like? But you've done the same exact thing, so it's, Cool to have that conversation with you. Um, that Palmer quote is so good. It's so good. And the way he says it as well, it's like, man, it like, what did he say? He goes, he goes, oh, winning is better than any drug. 
and take it from me because I've done a lot. And then he pauses for a second and he goes, of drugs. <laughs> yeah, like it's 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 so scary because it's so true. You can like, you, you know Palmer and for the listeners home, Google Sean Palmer. He's one of the best action sport athletes, one of the best snowboard in the world. And then in the summer, he decided to go ride downhill mountain bikes and he won a World Cup. So he did multi-disciplines. Yeah, and he's like... He's like those rich ass yacht owning mother fluffers. Like, you you can't get this feeling I'm getting, you know. If you stand on top of that podium, and and like you can't get it from anything. <laughs> yeah, and he says about the drugs, it's just crazy, isn't it? But it makes a lot of sense, you know. That it's it is a big feeling and an amazing feeling. But if you put your fulfillment and your self worth into the results, I think that's where it's really dangerous, you know. That's not really who you are. That's what you did. You know, it's like it's, it was your job. It's it's hard to like when you've done that for so long. Yeah, it's hard for people to separate. You know, that's like that's it's what you, you get. It's an outlet for that adrenaline rush. It's an outlet for like setting a goal and accomplishing it. It's an outlet for creativity. So then I guess the name of the game uh, for me has been to like try to f- find a balance of going okay i know like i have this issue where i need to risk myself on occasion to get something from it that is like a little bit selfish but it's not the it's not the worst selfish thing you can do and uh and so i do still like to take risks if i don't have to because i get something from it and and that can't be really replaced by anything else and then like what is another thing that we really enjoyed about competing? Like when you were getting to downhill race, you enjoyed the whole, like you said, a singular focus. The whole week led up to one run. Like in Slope Style or Rampage, you get two runs. So your first one, you're on edge, but you also know that there's a safety net. And then your second run is more similar to a downhill race. But in downhill, you guys work all week there practicing conversations with your mechanic, all these stupid little changes to your bike you don't even need to make for this one run and if it goes well then euphoria showers down and if it goes poorly then you're miserable and you just sink all of that into the next week's race and uh so that that there's danger within downhill racing for sure but also just that idea of like having to put everything out of your mind and focus on this three and a half minutes and nothing else. That's like a clarity that you can't buy, you know, like people search for that. They go to the Himalayas and walk around like, you know, wandering lunatics to try to get that sort of singular clarity, but you would get it from downhill racing. And I feel like there's ways to get that without the danger, not to say that we don't still crave the danger and the adrenaline, but you do get adrenaline sometimes from things that aren't dangerous and having a, a high pressure situation come down to you not losing your focus. And you and I both um, perhaps are afflicted with some um, degree of ADD. And I think we love to be backed into a corner and forced into a situation where you have to have a singular focus. And I think you and I get to experience that with commentating when the events are down to the wire and you know people are experiencing that event through us we want them to feel as close to the athlete as they possibly can to maybe get some of that um 
uh, contagious adrenaline sneezed onto them. And, uh, and that's our job. And we don't take that lightly. We want to do the, the right thing, say the right thing, because there's no control delete. There's no control Z back up. Oh, let's do that again. It's live. So do you feel like with announcing you get to tap back into that pressure a little bit? I think so. I think that's a brilliant point. I, I did when I transitioned, I thought, OK, maybe to be a job and I have the knowledge. Um, but I really fell in love with it. Yeah, the the going live and the, you know, we, you know, for the listener at home, we get that 30 second count. We look at each other and we're like, you know, we're we're giddy and we're we don't seem focused. But we we know that when it goes zero and we're on air, like, yes, we don't get to retake anything. And like yes. you said, we've got to be focused for two hours. But you know, the real big moment could happen any time in that two hours. And, and you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be switched on. You've got to have done your research. So you're right. Yeah, it, it is a Dude, little I'm bit of I'm getting excited just hearing you talk about it. It's so yeah. fun. Like my right armpit, you know how bad that thing is. It's sweating like crazy right now just because you walk me through that feeling that we get before a live broadcast. I love that. Your palms are sweaty. Your pits are sweaty. You're nervous, your mouth is dry, and you're just like, let's go. This is go time. And it's like And you have that and you have that same doubt, like, am I gonna mess it up? Like, am I gonna yes. say the right thing? And that's the same doubt you have before a race. So I, I would assume, you know, well, before a business meeting as well, depends on what's yeah. on the line. And you have that doubt and you just gotta push through and you gotta focus on the process. And then afterwards you're like, I think that went well. We did it because we were prepared because, you know, we've got the knowledge and, and we're excited and passionate about doing it. So, yeah, I do think we get a bit of that fix from Dude. from that. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so fun. And I like remember the feeling of doing contest runs where you're doubting yourself so heavy in the start gate. And then by the first feature, even like just some uh, trail connector leading into the first or second feature, you just feel so on <clears throat> and you're like, all right, cool. Now I get to go autopilot and just make this happen and like listen to the crowd. You know, that feeling was cool, doubting yourself. And then as soon as you start doing it, you're like, I know what I'm doing. And I feel the same way about when we start a broadcast is you're like, you're like, this is going to suck. This is going to suck. It's going to be horrible. And then as soon as you get going, you're just in the flow and you're now being reactive rather than trying to force something. And I love that feeling. And I think like bringing it back to the, our purpose in talking about this is it's nice to find those things. If you're like, you know, like us coming from a, you know, risk-taking background and thriving off these adrenaline rushes. It's nice to find ways to still get that that don't necessarily have the same consequences. If we mess up, what's the worst that's going to happen? Somebody's going to say that we suck. You know, we can deal with that. <laughs> it's not it's not hospital time, you know, but you still get that rush, and you can still go out on your bike now, like, through filming and stuff like that and do something dangerous just because you want to and you, like, enjoy pushing a sport. And for me, I just love what the mountain bike is capable of, and I feel like we've only scratched the surface of its capabilities in terrain, mixing these slope-style tricks with terrain and just interpreting that terrain. And so, I don't know, it's, like, risk-taking, it's pressure, it's create, it's a creative outlet. And even though that still uh, applies to the way you and I view mountain biking now, we can still do those things, there also are other ways to get that same feeling to where you're not. Like, when, at some point, we can't, get crazy on bikes hopefully by that point we've found enough outlets to where we can still get those same feelings we require without the same risk well can you help the listener understand what it's like out in the big free ride world or now doing a film segment where you're going to get that fix where you decide you're going to potentially backflip quite a big step down and and a lot of the listeners will know about rampage and if if not google it but walk me through 
landing something for the first time or going for something for the first time? What's that self-talk like at the top of the run-in? Hi, Shaylee. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like a whole lot of visualization, right? Like a bunch of like past experiences that are being tapped into, a lot of convincing yourself that you're ready even if you don't think you might be. <laughs> when the time is right, you, you, you're going to have to be ready. So then you just tap into all the experiences you've had. And realistically, as soon as you commit and go, then all of those past experiences are going to be tapped in involuntarily. And it's going to be, you know, like an instinctual type of thing. And so it is about like, I do find that like, even though I stopped competing like six seasons ago, which is forever, um, I feel like I'm a better rider now than I've ever been. And I feel like I trust my instincts more now than I used to. Like I'm far more comfortable guinea pigging things now than I was even in my competition years. Like if I'm out filming with people in big terrain, like I just, I don't second guess. Like I trust that I know my speeds and uh, I also trust that I know the consequences. I remember like early, early, early on filming some of my first few segments for New World Disorder being out in like the desert in Utah, like Green River and stuff like that with guys like Robbie Borden, Bear Claw, you know, Zinc and Lyle. And we're all out there looking at things, walking out on cliffs, looking off of them. I remember having this really like um, disconcerting feeling when I was on some of these cliffs because I looked at them and I thought, yeah, this looks perfect. Like I should definitely ride off this thing. But also in the back of my mind, I had like this voice that was like, you've never fallen off of something this big. You don't understand the consequences. So you're not even qualified to decide if you're ready to do this or not. And I, I would love to go back out to Green River and try to find some of those same cliffs that looked perfect. And I was thinking there's no reason why I shouldn't ride off this, except for the fact that I don't understand the consequences because I feel like now I do understand the consequences and I do trust my speed judgment more. And you know, the shame with action sports is as soon as your brain is like far more equipped and capable of like making decisions in uh in dangerous circumstances your body is starting to get to the point where it isn't going to heal as fast <laughs> if you happen to calibrate um incorrectly you know and uh i don't know being 34 is cool i'm i'm like feeling pretty comfortable on my bike but also really capable and not not like super predisposed to injuries but i know that that's not going to last for long so there are times where i'm like all right cool i want to get it out of my system before it's too late because it is not too late yet <laughs> what well, so you're at the point where you don't want to wait too long to try something because you think your body could maybe heal you're still yeah <laughs> thinking yeah, that way good yeah my body feels good and i want to still take some risks before it's too late and my body won't do the things that my brain wants it to do but also like, I don't want to be, make one bad decision <laughs> or just, you know, you know, the, this, these times, you know, you make a living doing this and, uh, it's all pretty, um, it's all pretty volatile, you know, like if you get hurt for an entire season, you're probably not going to re-up any of your deals and that's probably that, you know? And so you go, all right, what's the balance of like not getting hurt for your family? What's the balance of not getting hurt and having to sit out four to six months and then losing all your sponsorships? Because then even if your body's ready, you're busy doing something else, you know, to make money and make ends meet. So I think like 
it's a weird time for an older free rider who still really wants to push themselves to make sure that they don't push themselves too far, but make sure they don't leave some out on the table that they wish they would have done because it's not like uh, longboard surfing. Free ride is a thing that you won't be doing when you're 60, like trail riding will be. And so I feel like any like, you know, 30 something free rider who's been doing it for a long time really wants to live out their like older years enjoying trail riding because it's the best and you can do it with anybody. You can do it with friends. So you go, all right, cool. Let me just get to that point. But without feeling like I left something out there that I could have done. <laughs> Dude, what a challenge. Just hearing all that, like you've got to make all those adjustments and sometimes on the fly on a trip, you know, when some young upstart has maybe got some trick he wants to land or you've built some jump, you've got to then calibrate all those different scenarios before you drop in. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like on old trips where like tons of money is going into these big, huge budget films and you're like, well, these opportunities are finite. This trip ends on that date. If you're going to get this shot, sometimes you're going to have to shoot it in the wind because this is the last shooting day. And like, I think one adjustment I've made is like now finally figuring it out is I'm just trying to like produce my own content. And a lot of my content I make is just for fun. It's not really any risk taking. It's just like enjoying a day of mountain biking having a little concept and doing it with some friends and putting something out to have a video that week but also when it comes to like the bigger stuff i feel like building up a youtube channel doing the fun stuff that isn't super high consequential is like all right it's like now building up you know your video game special power to deserve another big film segment because now you have a platform for it and like controlling your own production means that if it's too windy and it's not right and you think that you're going to do it just for the sake of getting it before the shoot window is over and that's going to increase the risk level by, you know, tenfold, you just don't because you're in charge of the camera and you can decide when you want to do it, you know. And so like the same way that quitting competition for me was a way to like grab the reins on some of the risks I was taking because when you're in competition mode, it's your time to go. It doesn't matter how windy it is. It doesn't matter how prepped you are. You're going because that's what you went there to do. But if you're controlling your own um, video shoots, you can do it when it's right. And if it's not right, come back tomorrow because you control the itinerary. And is that feeling like how much of it is in your gut? Not to go on too much about why you do a trick or when you drop in, but that feeling comes from your gut, right? There's an innate feeling of like, I'm not comfortable. And then sometimes you have to pull the pin. Yeah, when everything's working, you're like, why is this so easy? You know, and it's probably because you're ready. The features the way it should be and the wind is low. Why is this working? I feel like I could just do this all day. Whereas being there um, under a different um, set of circumstances, it would all seem impossible. So it's like appreciating the fact that these things are fleeting and perfect conditions are hard to come by and just capitalizing on them when they exist. And uh, like when you have no doubt and it's something that you should have a lot of doubt on, just trust that. Don't wonder why. Don't, don't like... Like that same way I was, I was that kid at the top of the cliff going, I shouldn't jump off this because I don't understand the consequences. If you feel like there's no, like that was a big doubt poking me in like between the eyes. Like if there is nothing poking you, don't overanalyze and wonder why you're not scared. Just go and do it because it means you're ready. Well, that's good, good words for the aspiring rider out there or listener, you know, don't, don't overanalyze it either. It's such a fine line and it, what you guys do just scares the crap out of me looking at Rampage 
and all that. Cam, you've been great with your time, and I think it's awesome that you're such a dedicated father and that you're finding your way in, in life after competitive freeride because, like we spoke about, that's so challenging to do. What So the guys can follow you on YouTube and Instagram. Obviously, you, you're putting out some fun videos. Uh, what have you got up your sleeve uh, in the near future? Yeah, so just filming a lot here at home this summer. Uh, supposed to have a video out today, but Reynolds crashed at the BMX track and broke seven ribs, so <laughs> he hasn't finished editing that one yet. But uh, it's youtube.com slash camacall, C-A-M-M-C-C-A-U-L. That's my YouTube channel. And uh, I try to put a video out every week. Um, we've got some really cool desert freeride zones here locally that we've been going to and building features and then session them with a crew. And, uh, and yeah, once, once trips start happening again, then yeah, I'm hoping to get out to Utah and shoot some stuff but but it spans the spectrum everything from like you know the 29er trail bike to the 27.5 free ride downhill bike to the slope bike to the weird little hybrid trickable terrain capable 26 inch all mountain bike so you never know what you know the next week is going to bring with videos because i never know what it's going to bring whatever i feel like doing whoever's in town and gets uh gets inspired to go out on the little trip that we're going to do for that week um, and then the more the channel builds, the more outlandish the videos will become. And it's almost like just doing it all over again, like doing the big feature films, um, as a kid was cool. And then now there's not as much budget for big feature films and the, the real audience is on YouTube. And so just starting from the ground up again, building a, building a small little subscribership following to the point where you get back into those big film projects, um, and then just litter the in-betweens with fun, fly-on-the-wall riding videos that make you want to get on your bike. That's my plan. Well, that's awesome. So the listeners follow along. It's infectious. It's positive attitude. The videos are fun. And Akam, I think you're inspiring the next generation. So keep doing that. And thanks again for your time and for coming on the show. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, and Andrew, I'm really excited that you're doing this. I think you're doing a great job moving the needle. I mean, that's a perfect name. I feel like hopefully you get a bunch more guests that that uh, move you because I think that's what you mean by it. We got to say stuff that moves you. So keep on doing it. I'm going to keep on listening. And I could say the same stuff about you. I appreciate the kind words. I love sitting in the booth next to you because you're also a very positive dude. We have way more fun than we should be allowed to when we do that. And uh, I'm really happy to see that you're taking those skills and putting them into this podcast. Dude, I appreciate it. Yeah, moving the needle. It's for people moving the needle of the sport or life or whatever it may be or entertainment. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. So thanks again and stay well, dude. Later, buddy. Well, I did warn you guys. I said he was a positive guy. What an awesome, awesome chat I just had with Cam McCall. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. So many nuggets in there. He's got a great attitude, as I said. And he's done so much for the sport of freeride and the sport in general. So thanks again to Cam for coming on. Cheers for downloading this episode. Please hit that subscribe button. Share it with some friends if you think they can benefit from this episode. Till the next one, guys. Stay well.